Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who deeply, deeply hopes that Paul Hawken is correct. Paul's new book is Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. If we did all this much damage in one generation, maybe maybe we can turn and raise. So, But the connections between the climate crisis and our industrial food system is becoming more clear every day. Industrial agriculture produces an estimated 40% of the world's methanes, methane. Um, last week, uh, the United Nations held the first ever U.S. Food System Summit. Um, the the event was described as world leaders, quoting, world leaders commit to tackling global hunger, climate change, biodiversity loss at historic UN Food System Summit. Did it meet this aspiration? Um, with us in studio today is Sophia um, Murphy. She's the executive director of the Minneapolis-based Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, IATP. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm Sophia Murphy. I've arrived in the Twin Cities maybe two months ago, um, 10 months into my job as executive director at IATP, Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. And I came here first about 25 years ago, newly married, and came to work at IATP then maybe 10 years old on their trade program, thinking about the World Trade Organization and the way that those new rules were changing what countries could do with their agriculture all around the world very largely influenced by what U.S. was doing and pushing for export markets. And in all those years in between, I've lived in Australia, Canada, now I've come back to the United States and stayed very involved in what would it take to secure food security at the international level? How does that piece of the puzzle look and how can we make it better? Um, and um, looking at trade as one of the ways to do that. Right, and we're going to get uh, more into some of the wonderful programs that IATP has, but just give us a little uh, thumbprint of some of the stuff that you guys are doing right now. So I would say a huge um, drive for all of the work is the climate crisis and what can we do and what's agriculture's part in that, both as a uh, cause of problems and also as a solution and as a necessary part of the world we're protecting. Um, and then we continue to be deeply committed to trade justice, which at the moment is taking us into redefining how trade policy is decided and what the content of trade should be. We spent a lot of exhausting years fighting bad trade rules. And we're really trying to move into a space to say, we need to trade, we have this relationship with the world, how do we do that better? And of course, we're, we're rooted in food and ag, and that includes programs here in Minnesota, farm to school programs, farm to early care, and it takes us all the way through to Rome and these UN uh, discussions and debates, which you know, last week there was a summit in New York. Rome is really the home of, of multilateral food policy, and we're engaged there as well. So um, what was your opinion on this uh, UN Food System Summit? You wrote an article about it. I did. I wrote an article that I, I wished I didn't have to write where we were expressing our disappointment. So you had a, a, a great agenda. Food systems are, are actually both because they need attention and there are a lot of crises to address and because there's so much hope in our food systems. There are things we could do to cut emissions quickly. There's this tremendous adaptive capacity that you see when you work in agriculture. Um, we all need to eat. It, it brings people together. Um, and it was also a great moment to be talking about food systems as a whole because we had seen with the COVID crisis, one, I think we'd learned uh, a lot about resilience 
and, and what that took and what happens when local systems can pivot and when they can't, what happens to global supply chains when a pandemic comes down and countries are all making decisions nationally and not necessarily thinking about the international consequences. We'd, we'd seen big problems. We'd also seen great adaptive responses. And we've seen hunger go up, which is tragic. <laughs> but we've also seen places where food and uh, food security was protected, like here in the United States. We saw that by putting money in people's pockets and ensuring that they did not have to, um, you know, that they, they were going to be able to eat regardless of whether they had a job that month because there were COVID payments coming in, it made a big difference to people. So that's the long answer about like an opportunity where we'd had all these experiments and ideas presented to us, and then a terrible process, a complete disregard for UN norms, for working with governments in the normal intergovernmental channel, even ignoring recent interesting and experimental work with how to engage non-government actors in food policy. And instead, that was taken over by the World Economic Forum, which is the business for the world's sort of club of the world's richest businesses. Um, this Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa, which is primarily funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a, a philanthropic initiative that has very little root actually in Africa where it's focused. Um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that, because on August 3rd in 2021 this year, African faith leaders presented their open letter to Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation demanding that it stop promoting industrial agriculture in Africa. So part of part of what we were talking about um, before this is the industrial food system has caused a lot of this climate crisis. It has. I, I think one of the um, one of the ways that a, a friend and colleague of mine, Darren Coleman from the National Farmers Union in Canada, he talks about it as, you know, agriculture for, you know, the first uh, 9,999 or 9,900 years of its existence was basically solar powered, uh, <laughs> regenerative, low emissions to no emissions. Um, and there were issues, like a lot of times you, you would miss out on eating, the crops weren't always secure, there were things around that system that was troublesome. But we moved in 100 years to this hugely fossil fuel dependent system that is very high input very high emissions, and it produces a lot of food, honestly, that doesn't keep us healthy. And there was, um, so, I mean, the aspirations are awesome. So the aspirations is zero hunger, zero poverty, uh, poverty, zero equality, and climate action. Um, and there were some beautiful speakers there. So, for instance, um, the youth speaker, um, she talked about having only nine generations of harvest left. Yeah, very sobering. I think that that's, that's the thing with the climate change. If you look at the report that came out in, in August from this international panel on climate change, IPCC, they're, they're telling you now we will be warming the planet. And now they're beginning to look at what does 1.5 degrees Celsius versus 2 or 3 degrees Celsius mean and, and urging action because each of these increments will make it harder. I, food and agriculture is highly adaptive, but we're going to see changes to the climate at a speed we've never experienced before. Right. And so because the climate, it, you're right about that speed. And so how do we catch up and what will catch us up in a way that is best for all people and best for these aspirations of zero hunger, zero poverty and a livable planet? What, what are the solutions? 
I think, well, one um, will be around methane. You mentioned it at the beginning. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas with a sh relatively short life, so that if you're able to cut it, you can make a big difference quickly. It's not the long-term, it's not doing the long-term harm that the carbon emissions are, but in the short term, it would buy you a lot of time to make a difference. But what if we treat, t teach the cows to go to the bathroom in a, in a pool? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to a confined animal farming operation or a CAFO, but there is is no toilet training going to happen with the number of cattle on those farms. It's just not, um, it's not serious. It's important to understand how the uh, manure can be integrated and, and, the, and the urea can be integrated into a farm system, but you have this scale issue. The, so one of your, and, and for those who may, may, may not have heard that story, there's like, there is some training cows, but one of your main criticisms is this this UN Food Summit should have taken on factory farming directly. It, it would have been, I mean, it, it wasn't for us to say, I guess, what the UN should do, but it would have been such a powerful opportunity to say we, we did this, you know, green revolution, highly production intensive thing, and it had these costs and it had these benefits, and now we're going to do so much better, and, and we're going to, we know how much harm we do. We actually know that producing a lot of corn in the United States isn't doing anything for hunger across the continent of Africa. In fact, in many ways, it's suppressing food production there that ought to be happening in the region. So we, we had an opportunity to really turn things around, but we would have had to understand our history. We would have had to build on existing UN commitments to change. And instead, they just had a big party, opened the doors, said, come on in, bring your ideas. And there was no filter on that. There was no, there was no, there were, they organized into these action tracks and, and people self-organized and there was some great ideas out, but there was lots of of rubbish in with with the quality ideas, and it and it was dangerous because it suggested that we didn't need an accountable system and a transparent decision making process, and and that for us was the, that was why so many um, nonprofits and civil societies we call ourselves organized for the public interest we we saw it it was a threat instead of just a big party that we could Right ignore. so there was a boycott of uh, some of those groups yes. so t talk a little bit about that Well it was it was this this expression you know you you um this this their their anger was such that for most of the UN processes you'll end up with what we call inside and outside tracks there'll be people um protesting in the street maybe organizing fairs puppet shows concerts talking about the big ideas and what needs to change. And you'll have people inside trying to talk to diplomats, trying to, to get the language a bit better. And we understand each other as, as, as allies in a struggle where the big protest opens a door and the fine work inside means something lasting is captured. We couldn't do that with the Food Systems Summit. There was no inside process to influence. And so um, what, would a, what would a people's, they call this the People Summit. So if it, but do you think it was? Do you think it lived up to that aspiration? No, I, th I think the people who, who live and care and work on food every day turned their backs. What we had in July was, I would say, a people's summit. So in July, there was a pre-summit in Rome that was for the organizing of the official summit to prepare. And at that time, there was something called a counter-summit. And hundreds of thousands of organizations around the world, some of them in Rome, just organized speak, uh, you know, um, teach-ins and concerts and, you know, put out short films and statements for what they would really want to see. 
Yeah, and um, so, um, but there is a uh, there is this growing awareness that food is both a, a problem and a solution to climate change. And how do we come together, both as a global community? And we're going to be talking more about that. And uh, we are also live today, so you can give us a call nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland, and we are live this morning. So if you have any questions, feel free to give us a call, 952-946-6205. And we're talking with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policies Executive Director, Sophia Murphy. Um, and so uh, last week, there was this big UN World's Food Summit. It was positioned as an historic event. And there was some awesome words in there. So, uh, for instance, um, the Executive Director of the UN Environmental Program, Dr. Ingrid Anderson, she was talking about the need to repurpose agricultural supports um, away from unsustainable programs. So that's something that's quite exciting to hear on an international stage. But what would that mean? Well, it, um, just one thing to say, one of the things that's very exciting about this, and there's a few other UN agencies that have gotten involved, is that for a long time, the World Trade Organization has had the rules on what these ag supports would be. And now we're seeing other UN agencies get involved and make a claim and say there's a lot more than trade at stake here. So that in itself was exciting. But it's also exciting because it it's a reminder to everyone that we spend a lot of public money on agriculture. And we spend it badly for the most part, especially in the United States and many, you know, most countries in Europe. We are spending money effectively subsidizing a fossil fuel-based food system. We don't need to. A monoculture system and pesticides. And we're we're uh, subsidizing corn syrup, and our seven percent of kids have high cholesterol, and obesity is going off the charts. And and so, talk a little bit more about what food gets tax dollar support and how. So so this long history, and 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 there's a lot to go into. But effectively, the the mix of what we inherited from the 30s, really, in the 1940s, as farm programs to support farmers when the economy was bad. Have, has morphed into something where basically eight commodity crops get almost all of the tax support. They are the wheat, corn, canola, um, barley oats, and those are those are grains that have their place in a food system, but they have nothing to do with an integrated. And that was one of your complaints about the U.S. Food System Summit: is that the suits that the the uh, the part of it was still. The food summit was sort of grounded in looking back at the 20th century model of agriculture. And we need to kind of both look forward and look back and try to create a different food model for the future. And that was really what I mean there is. And actually, Secretary Frag last week, Secretary Vilsack, again, kind of pushes this idea that a good ag system produces as much food as possible. And that's what's got us into the climate mess. It's what gets us into polluted water. It gets us into too much of the wrong food and not into the um, sort of biodiverse mixed farm systems that would diversify farm income, but it would also be diversifying the foods available and the public money could be going into ensuring those production systems were sustainable, which would include remunerative for farmers and decent work for farm workers. Yeah, and so we we do have a call right now. Uh, David, hi David, you wanna talk about food stamps? Yeah, well, it was uh, about food stamps economics, and uh, I, as you're describing this uh, 
you know, the future of food and the future of uh, food programs, uh, you know, for educating kids, I'm wondering if it would pay for itself. As I understand it, uh, food stamps historically, for at least 50 years, for every $1 that comes into your town in food stamps, it turns into $1.85 in the local economy. You know, it gets spent at the grocery store, the grocery store expands, does something to, you know, expand its life, and they're, they're, that $1 of food stamps turns into $1.85. And um, I'm just wondering if that kind of economics, since you're talking about training kids for the next generation to uh, get involved in food, uh, whether it's food growing or food production, uh, I'm just wondering if there's a, uh, a way that that, uh, uh, that economics can uh, help out. Thanks so much, David. Yeah, that, so do you want to talk on that, Sophia? Well, I think... Um, I think part of what it of what we understand about food and it for it's one of the reasons for example we have these farm to school programs and why the US has uh, many places has you know free lunch for kids and so on. So the first thing about food is that you need to eat in order to function. So if you're going to be economically active, productive, you need good food and you need that from the start, from the womb. You need to be in a in in a, you know your mother needs to be properly nourished for you to be a healthy child. And then all the way through your life, you're going to produce and perform better if you have food. So there's that kind of economics, too. A, a fed population is a productive population. And a less stressed population. And we're just all freaking out. And so how do we create an economy that's, um, that's easier? And I, I, I think that's the fight for, the, for, for, for living wage, for example. If your wage doesn't mean that you're secure, that your roof will stay over your head, or that your kids are going to have enough to eat, then you're not going to either be a healthy person. But there's there's another piece to what David is saying, which I think is also important, which is these these dollars can can be spent in different ways. Some of the food stamp programs actually are for processed foods that are not really circulating um, capital in the local economy. But we've got programs here in Minnesota, for example, like the, the um, farmer's market bucks that are allowing you to, to deliberately put capital into the local economy where it can circulate and multiply rather than taking it straight out to, to a corporate headquarters somewhere else. Great. Um, thanks so much, David, for calling, unless you have any other comments. Well, we do. I'm calling you from San Francisco, and those, uh, the, the uh, farmer's market bucks are in use out here, and it's, it's very much helped uh, during the COVID epidemic uh, stabilize the farmer's markets. You know, one other thing I was going to add, uh, topsoil loss. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, for that matter, uh, have seen a huge amount of topsoil erosion with those massive floods. And uh, I've been calling a lot of radio stations, uh, usually the gardening shows, and asking them if they think that topsoil should be part of the infrastructure bill. Oh, interesting. And, you know, the loss of topsoil, we could turn into a, a Sahara Desert quickly if, if uh, these floods and hurricanes go on, you know, year after year. So I'm just wondering if uh, you've considered that, uh, you know, putting in a bid as uh, topsoil retention. I, I, I don't, I, I think it's a great idea, David. I think the whole, I think the, this is back to the repurposing of agricultural support, that we should be using public money to support and protect clean, fresh water, um, a healthy topsoil. We should be looking for outcomes on the farm. And that's where the conservation programs we have, such as they are, underfunded, but, you know, in high demand. 
those those are going to those kinds of objectives, and I think it would be a great use of public money to be protecting our public good, and the soil would absolutely be one of them. And what, how do we create the food system we want for the future? We want vital soils. I mean, we need that vital absolutely soil. It's critical. all grounded on the soil, all and so critical. so that's that's um I, I thank you again, David. So this uh, Dr. Ingrid Anderson, the executive director at the UN Environmental Program, she was speaking at the World Food Summit, and she was talking about repurposing the agricultural supports. And I know, I don't know if I, I don't remember the statistics exactly, but farmers were under Trump administration, a whole bunch of their income was coming from food support from government, from our tax dollars. So there were huge tax subsidies going to certain farmers. So this is one of the things about the system here that we've never spent so much money. There's actually, the data was just crunched this week on, um, we're approaching $19 billion to farmers. We haven't spent that kind of money. I, I don't know if we've ever spent that kind of money. Um, but it's going to certain it's going to landowners. It's based on historic production. Yeah, and what uh, two families now own? A uh, hundred families own two percent of the farmland. So it's we're gonna, we're on break, but or we're going to break. But you can call nine five two nine four six six two zero five. And we do have a sad song right now. We really do. Uh, approximately one million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction, uh, many within decades. Um, our food system emits approximately one-third of the world's greenhouse grass gases. And what has driven much of this is intensive industrial agriculture, and it's dominated by a, a handful. So there, there's problems with us with, in terms of consolidation and power in the food system. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland. We are live, 952 6205. And with us is the executive director of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, Sophia Murphy. So talk a little bit about the connection between IATP and the power in the food system. So uh, one of the reasons that I you know, came to work at IATP and have stayed and come back now to, to be executive director is because of IATP's history of taking on power. So Mark Ritchie, maybe known to many yes, of Yes, Mark uh, Ritchie, sure. Secretary of State. That's and correct. So Mark, um, you know, in the mid '80s, was 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 working in agriculture for the I think for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture and dealing with the farm crisis, and began to put together the pieces that the government response to the crisis was not paying attention to what farmers needed, and was instead turning its mind to this uh, export markets as a solution. And Mark asked who was interested in those export markets and what was behind it, and and was pointing out that there was a big split of interest between farmers and agribusiness. So we often think of the farm economy as a united thing. Often agribusiness will speak in the name of farmers. But here there was clearly businesses interested in in low-cost commodity that for them was an input into processed food or something they could compete with on an international market. They wanted to keep farm gate prices low. And of course, farmers needed those farm gate prices to be remunerative instead. So the the other piece of that trade agenda that Mark targeted as, as a threat was that by globalizing the system, you were going to give an advantage to the already multinational traders at the expense of the local companies and local agribusinesses that might be operating in in different countries around the world. Because the terms of that trade relationship was effectively say, just come on in and do what you like. And a bit like Walmart versus the small corner grocery store, Walmart was operating in a whole other economic system where its advantages were going to crush 
the advantages that a local local store might offer. The trade was effectively removed the obvious advantages to the local in terms of local capital formation, probably more employment and, and different businesses and uh, uh, services that would thrive if there was a strong local economy. Walmart's advantages on the global stage were so much greater that that local interest was crushed out. And Marx saw that and built on that. And it's still an important part of the analysis that IATP would bring to any of these discussions. So why is Industrial Act so polluting and yet allowed to continue to pollute? Because economic power translates into political power. And so we have a constant struggle to keep um, those corporate messages challenged in the media, challenged in our legislature, um, and, and then challenged in these international arenas where you know, a, a, a global company is able to be present at everybody's national policy decision-making, giving them lots of influence. So I have here information from People's Counter Mobilization to Transform the Corporate Food System. So talk a little bit about the Food for People, this group, and how they... So I think it's a, these, are, these are alliances of organizations. There's, there's a UN committee on world food security that is a small and had been a very obscure piece of the machinery that kind of got huge new life at the time of the food price crisis, just before the global economic meltdown in 2008. There had been really high food commodity prices and a lot of riots in different places. A couple of governments were overthrown. And, and that shock in the international market had forced the UN system to respond. And they kind of reignited this committee and when they set it up and reformed it, they created a voice in the decision-making for civil society, for, for non-government voices organized in the public interest. And this um, alliance is coming out of the, the many NGOs, trade unions, women's organizations that organize themselves to be present in Rome. And they have a whole self-organized structure to be regional. We have a North American kind of presence. And there are also these issues. There's the Youth Caucus, very powerful voice for young people in agriculture. So there's, there's all these different um, channels, if you like, caucuses. And, and they're trying to say some fairly simple things about claiming back food as a people's right, not only a commercial Right, so it's it's right to food, and so um, so let's talk about um, how they might how might they talk about right to food. What what's their vision of the food system? So it's certainly that that group I would say is is challenging the commodification of food. They are there are farmers involved. They're not saying we would never sell or buy food, but they're challenging the premise that only if you have the money to buy it do you deserve food. And they're saying instead, it's a human right. We all should have access to food. And actually, the way we behave, cultures everywhere, you know, whether we're religious or not, or, you know, wherever we're engaged, you, you, you don't accept hunger in your midst. It's a very powerful, basic human instinct as a social species. And that's, as a social species, and that instinct is to have um, a right to food for all. And when food is a commodity, then it's almost like we're, um, we're chained in some ways. Well, it, 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 it's effectively, um, one, it divorces it from, from that culture, from those ethics, and two, it, it, it reduces it to something so much less than it is. And I think a lot of the environmental damage we have is because somehow we allowed our economics to pretend that all of these other 
um, this, this other wealth, this other form of value didn't matter. Right. So water is life. Yeah, absolutely. Water you, is life. Water is life. And I like, so they, they have a, um, a concrete vision that's actually on the on the UN documents. And so, um, so they talk about, uh, um, they use the word bonded to mean local um, and diverse foods, not just corn and soy, like you're talking about these 10, but the diverse food system supporting that. And I think if you know anything about nutrition, you know, we need like a lot, uh, we need a little of a lot of things. We don't thrive on rice alone. We wouldn't thrive on meat alone. We don't just need sugar. In fact, probably don't need sugar <laughs> at all. But we want a mix of things. And, and one of the things about Bounded is even if it's not just your immediate locale, there's a, there's a, there's a mix of things available to you that you take advantage of instead of just having one thing all the time. But the moment we feed people mostly on starch, I know, and that's and so we also uh, David Calden talked about the topsoil crisis. Well, and that topsoil crisis is is uh, part is, is funded by it's it's because the 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 sterile type of food system is crazy. Yeah, huge inputs that are external to that to that ecosystem are dumped in, and then huge runoff, which is killing ecosystems all down the system. You look at a state like well, Minnesota will have issues, Iowa. You know, we're running off a whole lot of nitrate that's killing as it goes. And you look at old industrial system, um, old indigenous systems, um, legumes and corn, and they work together to strengthen the soil. Yeah, you have integrated systems. And actually, animals are an important part of that balance. It's just, it, it's all not it's back to scale. Maybe not always back, but often back to scale. Some animals and a diversity of animals um, will be an important part of the nutrient balance. And another point of the uh, right to food agenda is, um, they use the word remuneration, but it's uh, farmers need to make a living and a good living. Farmers need to make a living. And I, and I, think, um, I think how they make a living, it's really fascinating and complex problem that all around the world, farmers do not make a living. So they're not all in the same circumstances, but it's very difficult for our capitalist idea of economics to reward agriculture, which is partly in that capitalist economy, economy, but partly not. And as a social animal, I mean, food, I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it, it just, it's a real... Um... Well, I think it's where some of the, there are other ways in which we could be ensuring people eat, and we tend to rely on public systems for that. So we tend to have this network in families. We feed our household. Um, within a church community, we might ensure that people who are, you know, ill or in some way unable to work, that they would get food. We have these other ways in which we redistribute food. And I think the COVID crisis showed us how powerful that could be, how much money there is, not money that is, but how, how effective that can be. And, and that should be part of the system, not in tension with it. Yeah. And another thing it mentions is solidarity and power relationships. That's back to this. Well, in part, it's back to the corporate concentration. How do you have, um, you know, here in Minnesota, we're struggling in order to ensure that any animal operation has to take account of its climate effect. This is not yet law, unbelievably. And the CAFOs, the, the confined animal feeding operations are being judged one by one. And there's no cumulative look. This is where the public interest comes in. Cumulatively, it matters how many of these confined animal lots are around, not only that each individual one might meet a certain set of regulations. And so we're not, this is a whole kind of mindset that we are trying to change to say, what's the overall impact on this, even globally? But even starting in the state, can we do yeah. it, please, and as a region? So talk more about uh, factory farming and how that might look, what, what, what you're asking for. 
I, so for the factory farming, some of these specific things, we're looking for them to be more tightly regulated. It should not be okay. They should not be able to pay workers so poorly. Those workers should be um, entitled to the same health, living wage benefits, protection under the law that they, that all workers have. It's uh, farm workers have particularly vulnerable status. Um, those animals shouldn't be in those lots. It's cruel and unnatural. Um, we're filling them with antibiotics, for example, which is actually endangering human health by rendering antibiotics less useful as the um, pathogens adapt to, to the antibiotics we have. It's polluting the water, generates um, air pollution that, that poisons life for the communities around. There's such a long list. There's so much documented evidence. There's a whole racial component to this because the communities that are primarily impacted by the siting of these lots tend to be communities where primarily minority or African-American communities are living, people are living. So you have this kind of uh, cumulative, again, a cumulative effect of an unaccountable system that is very well funded, but is doing a lot of harm and a lack of responsiveness in our politics to, to hear from those who are trying to change it. Well, and I've heard, too, that uh, like in the cattle industry, I mean, you have four companies controlling 85 percent of the meat packing. And so the cattle farmers aren't getting money. But these larger, and the price of beef is going up. And so. <sighs> well, there's a really powerful piece of the Biden and Harris administration's um, focus on antitrust. They've put some real intellectual heft behind antitrust. And it's actually, I mean, here we feel so disheartened. It's been so long. It's so difficult to challenge these three, four companies in so many sectors in ag that control sometimes one or two, you know, farm machinery. But we have people now thinking about this problem, and we could do we could make a difference. Right. So the antitrust issue is coming up the agenda. So talk a little bit. What does the word antitrust even mean? Well, I, I, this is where I'll pull my English accent out. It you know it's an American concept, but it's, it comes out of the turn of the twentieth century when we were taking on steel and 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 coal and railways and cartels, effectively of, of a sort of monopoly capital and forcing those to, to disaggregate into smaller entities so that they would be less powerful. So they built trusts, and this was antitrust to break it. And we, I think, will need both to know that history and to relive it, but also to think in our context. Um, for example, soil it could be something held in the public trust. And we could begin to say, if you want, like utilities, to have the right to have a monopoly on a utility, you have to meet a certain number of goals. You have to serve every house. You can't just pick which houses you serve. We should be making that power that is um, that aggregates around a trader conditional on meeting certain public interests. Not enough to make money and hire people. You've got to give back. Yeah, I have a solidarity economy instead of a jerk economy. That's that's what uh, and uh, um, and the power of agroecology to address our ecological crises. So crucial. We, we have uh, we're, we're going to be taking a break, but we do have time for your call nine five two nine four six six two zero five. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. To Food Freedom Radio, I'm Laura Hedlund, and with us in studio is Sophia uh, Murphy, the executive director of IATP. Um, 
And last uh, last week, the United Nations held the first ever UN Food Summit. And if anyone wants to listen, you can listen to the speeches directly by going to the UN Food System Summit, and that was on September 23rd. Um, and at the last segment, we used that word agroecology. What is what does that refer to? So agroecology is a um, it's a way of thinking about how we produce our food and um, the relationships around that food production, I would say. So a lot of people probably have heard of regenerative agriculture, um, something that has more currency in the United States. And this is a way of thinking about how to grow food in a way that doesn't um, diminish uh, the soil, but replenishes it instead and keeps those systems um, healthy and thriving. Agroecology is interested in that. It also has this aspect of participation and kind of community ownership that has been a really important part of um, the organizing around agroecology. And that's where you're, you're deliberately learning from the farmers who've been working that land, indigenous peoples for thousands of years, but also th those who've come since, and you're engaging them in what we should do with the land and how the food should be grown. And IETP has an example in your history. I mean, you helped found Peace Coffee. Because so we found it, we did. We helped to found Peace Coffee, and and that was, it, it reflects agroecological principles because it was fair trade. It was about um, ensuring that the benefit returned to the community that was growing the coffee. That was the, the heart of it. And agroecology is about ensuring that the production of food is something that the people growing the food benefit from. And a lot of industrial ag systems, those who grow our food, do not benefit. Yeah, that is, um, yeah, because they're not the ones that are. And even uh, the birds benefit because it was shade-grown um, So there was the coffee. whole ecological part around, yeah, there was shade coffee, making sure that the bird populations were protected. There was um, integrating that coffee into other crops so that the um, local communities weren't only dependent on their coffee beans, had other food and other production going on at the same time. And then... Um, one of the powerful ideas of fair trade is organizing communities, creating a space where the community came together to say, what do we need? And how to um, scale up that concept, uh, that not concept, but that ethos of living world? Well, I think I mean, Mexico is an interesting example. So, so, so Mexico has now written in to its um, sort of national agriculture objectives agroecological outcomes. And you can imagine the translation isn't simple, but it is, this is, again, back to repurposing public money. They are deliberately matching the public money to a vision of ag that isn't premised on grow as much corn as you can. It's premised on how much food can this land yield. That's a very important part of agroecology is you look at the total food production in the system, including for other species than humans, and, and then you assess the effectiveness. So the effectiveness isn't in the bushels, it's in the, it's in the, yeah, the entirety of what the system yields. And so that's, that, that's a fascinating example, and I think when we get to the crux of the problem of what was wrong with the UN Food System Summit, is it didn't come from that place of heart, it came more from the traditional, or not traditional, but this, um, Extractive, extractive blend. model, and and for me there was there was room and some talk about the agroecological, but there was it was as if there were no difference, as if as if we had no reason to put one above the other. Everyone could come and talk about what they believed in, but we have we have facts. We know that the climate is in crisis. We know that agriculture in the United States emits far too many greenhouse gases. We know our biodiversity is threatened. That should have been part of the discussion, not just somebody's bright idea. 
Right, and uh, and to broaden that, so even the dire- uh, director general of the World Health Organization was talking about the health effects from overuse of pesticides. Um, and David Beasley, the World's Food Program, um, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2021, he had a very passionate speech on um, children cannot eat promises and shame on billionaires for gaining 5.2 billion every day of the crisis. I mean, we've had such a concentration of wealth, and it's sort of like. What's it all for? I agree. You What's know? it all for? And uh, apparently rocket launches to the moon. But, but then, uh, sadly, we could be doing quite a lot else. And actually, it's not only, I mean, it, it's, the, it's the sort of failure of imagination that somehow that would be important and worthwhile. And, and, that, and that that is even the goal. We should be doing other things with the food system. <clears throat> it, it's, it should be profitable, but in a sense of profitable for all, for our survival. It doesn't it doesn't need to be profitable in the sense of a shareholder quarterly return. And looking at all things as a commodity, it's not um, – I think it's just too stressful of a way to live. <laughs> I mean, it's just like everything is commodified and, um, and, and so we need different systems. Um, and I mean, even UNICEF had a. She's talking about the food system impact on children. I mean, the the food, the current industrial system is delivering very unhealthy food. It delivers unhealthy food, but also if you think like if your if your single parent is working two jobs in order to put food on the table, then your family life is impacted by that too. So, this is this is. Um, I think that's part for me of what the human rights is about. You know, to engage meaningfully in a political system. You need not to be worried about where the next meal is going to come from. And and to be able to build and, and have healthy, strong families, you need to know that, that you're not threatened, that you're, you're not just one paycheck away from the whole thing falling apart. And I, and I think that that's where we learned so much in the last 10 years. And I mean, when COVID hit, 150 or more countries put in place payments, government money into people's pockets, mostly into women's pockets because they recognize women as the head of the family eating household. And, and that was to make sure that though they'd lost their jobs, many of them day laborers just ate every day what, from what, you know, paid for what they ate from that day's wages. The government stepped in, however, you know, in some cases like Burkina Faso, it's not a lot of money, but they stepped in to make sure there was some provision. And then you protect that right. That means you're not trying to rescue people back from starvation. You can actually then go and say, now we're going to restart the economy and people are ready to go back to work. You've, you've not only spared their lives from starvation and, and their dignity, but you've also left yourself in a position where you're going to come back. That's what resilience is all about. And that's where the uh, COVID taught us so many things. We, in many ways, there were really positive responses to that protecting resilience. And now we need to take it into the take the it in. Because I mean, the thing that I go back to is the tragedy of those factory farm hogs being slaughtered and not for food. And that just tells me how insane and irrational the whole system is. Uh, well, it's premised on a kind of just-in-time delivery, which means you don't have anything sort of stocked for when you need it. And it's also channeled into very specific outcomes. Like in Canada, we had mountains of potatoes that were only destined for French fries. Well, nobody sitting at home in the pandemic wants a you know, 50-pound bag of frozen French fries to deal with, which is what they were providing to McDonald's or to whoever the service um, restaurant business. And so there was this huge, like, tanker that you had to somehow shift mid-ocean. <laughs> and, and the result was massive waste. But the truth is there was waste before. We don't see how much waste is needed 
to fill those supermarket shelves. So it's obviously a very complex topic. I'm glad the UN uh, took it on, the first ever uh, UN Food System Summit. Uh, people can go and get information uh, about that online if they want to listen to the speeches. And how do people find out about your IATP? They should log on to www.iatp.org and uh, come check out what we have to say. Join us in this fight. Join us, yeah. Let's have a, let's have a world that works for all. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.